dear people, here we are with another episode of ReporterCast for June 2023, celebrating also a year since Reporter.London was launched, and what a great year it has been. Probably the best and most interesting of my still short life of 12 years in journalism. Thanks to everyone who has been with us for this adventure. For this special edition, we have a guest who is living proof that financial investigation can make a difference, can save lives and make the world a safer place. This man was a spy and a terrorist hunter, but unlike someone out of a James Bond film or Argo, he smoked out ruthless fanatical terrorists from behind a computer screen, with his analytical training and propensity for interpreting large amounts of financial data. He also wrote a book about it, which we'll talk about in a bit. His name is Yair Samban, former officer with the Military Intelligence Agency of Israel, and currently a consultant and expert in anti-money laundering and financial crime in London. Welcome to ReporterCast. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for joining us. And uh, to kick things off, um, uh, we should mention you're also Romanian, but you left for Israel a long time ago. Uh, before we get into the, the big stories, can you say more a bit, uh, a bit more about that? Where were you born? a bit about your parents, your early life, and how did you end up leaving from Romania to Israel? So I was born in Romania. Uh, my parents were Jewish-Romanian. Um, the situation in Romania in the uh, late 70s when I was born uh, was not very good for a Jewish people. There was anti-Semitism and the economical situation was uh, not very good due to uh, communism. So uh, after, uh, when I was six years old, we moved uh, to Israel. I kept connections and ties to uh, Romania because it's a uh, very interesting and uh, I have a warm place in my heart for Romania but uh, most of my adult life was uh, spent in Israel and where I grew up and like many people in Israel got into the uh, military service I stayed in service years after the mandatory service because it was interesting and I felt a calling to that and tell you about it a bit later uh, and today, as you know, I live in uh, London I work with uh, Pegasystem which is a software company that uh, has a workflow automation solution driven by artificial intelligence for many complex problems, one of them being uh, KYC and anti-money laundering, as you know, one of the uh, most complex problems uh, of the world today. Right, thanks. And um, I suppose you've been to Romania recently as well. And how, how do you think it compares to the way it was back then and compares to Israel today and back then as well? Uh, two different stories, actually, I think. Um, Romania has moved along a very far from where it was uh, during communist times, and it's all uh, very good. There is a bubbling uh, tech uh, scene, uh, the economy is uh, cleaner, uh, politics is a lot more oriented towards the EU. I think Romania is kind of like a success story of integration in the uh, Western uh, liberal uh, world. There are, interestingly enough, pockets of, of people and uh, political elements that are still part of the old uh, school uh, regime, but they are not operating uh, like you see in further east and, uh, and so on. So there's, I think, very little, comparatively speaking, in terms of you know economic criminality and so on coming out of Romania. Also, if you look at the uh, researchers in the uh, industry, Romania is not coming up uh, strongly in those uh, tables, which, which, is like, which is good, I mean, I like it. And when you come to Romania, you feel refreshed and energized, and it's a country that has a lot of uh, future ahead of it. Uh, Israel, uh, again, different story, but um, Israel is an immigrant country. Uh, you get people from all kinds of uh, backgrounds, uh, all of them united by the uh, Jewish uh, religion, but different uh, ethnic backgrounds and uh, so on. 
And also because Israel also has a large population of Palestinian Arabs, they have to make it work somehow. So there's constant jostling around and trying to understand how they work together and so on. Overall, again, I like Israel. It's my, my home country after Romania. So I think they made a huge improvement in the last three decades. Right, interesting, very interesting. And you mentioned uh, a little bit about your career. Um, could you talk a bit about how you got into intelligence and specifically financial intelligence? Um, and why did you want to, to uh, fight the terrorists? Because in, in the Israeli army you have different options. You don't have to be in this particular um, uh, branch of it. Yeah, so I, I started my military service <clears throat> as an analyst in the uh, intelligence uh, services. Um, most of that period my professional career is shaded in the security clearances and so on, so I can't talk uh, too much about it. But you have to say that what the uh, military was trying to do is to support the operations of the uh, other branches of the uh, Israeli security uh, ecosystem with data and with access to uh, computing power and people that powers this uh, the more separate, secret uh, operation. So if a person goes across borders to do something uh, directly with their suspects, they need a foundation of data. Who is doing business? Under what cover? Where is the money changing hands? And, and what's the intelligence uh, picture? So I was responsible for creating this, uh, this picture. Uh, my topics of study were different, so I moved between various terrorist organizations as my uh, topic of, uh, of study. Uh, also, I could say that the Israeli military gives many people uh, a career and education in technology and data science and analytics because they train you up to be efficient in the service and then after a few years of doing that you discover that it's more exciting than going in the public uh, in the private sector. Uh, I did go to the private sector later on but that's a different uh, story which we'll get to. The turning point uh, in my life was that um, I was with a friend uh, at a bar in Tel Aviv called uh, Mike's Place and a very famous uh, terrorist attack. Um, my friend unfortunately got uh, killed in that, uh, in that event. And I was together with him until a few hours uh, before this, uh, this event. I lived a few streets from, uh, from this uh, bar. It's near the American Embassy in, uh, in Tel Aviv. And I heard the blast, I ran back to uh, the, uh, the place and uh, my friend was no longer there. And at that point, moment I decided that I do want to spend a significant part of my life researching terrorist organizations and doing what I can to stop them. I will never be the person that goes and fight them face to face, but I can do my part by understanding how they operate, getting into their head, also uh, read and uh, write and speak Arabic, uh, so that helps. Um, so I used my skills to continue the fight and to, in a way, I keep my friend in my memory whenever I'm engaging in those uh, in my research activities. Right, and this, this particular terrorist attack, this was Hezbollah, wasn't it, or, or, or Hamas? Or? It was jihadis coming out of London, uh, oh. interestingly enough. Um, they were affiliated with Al-Qaeda, but they were not organizationally uh, Al-Qaeda. And this is actually something very interesting, because the way the Islamic terrorist uh, networks operate is that most of their uh, foot soldiers are people that are like me and you, but they are being radicalized outside of the main operation centers of the uh, terrorist organizations, like for example in, uh, in England, and then they decide uh, to come to places like uh, Tel Aviv and uh, bomb themselves. 
However, this is the story that you hear in the, uh, in the press and the news and so on, but where do these people get the training? How do they get the money to fly to the uh, locations? I mean, not every person can buy a ticket um, uh, to Tel Aviv and maybe use a false identity and, uh, or something like that. So there are financial channels that feed money into those recruitment and uh, operational channels, which I spent some time researching, um, and these are different across the different organizations, but back to your point, um, it wasn't one of the big uh, known uh, brands, it was a franchise operation of Al-Qaeda. Right. And um, you said before that um, your main opponents over the years turned out to be Hezbollah, and you ended up even testifying against them at some point in court. Could you talk a little bit about that, you know, the parts of it that are uh, okay to talk about in public? And um, could you describe Hezbollah, how they operate, what, what are generally their aims? And, uh, you know, how, how do you think they should be stopped? So I testified against a cell that was funded and guided by, uh, by Hezbollah. Um, they operated under certain levels of cover. So the, the people that are in the country operating under this uh, organization, they did not have like cards that said, I'm on the Hezbollah operative. They thought they had their own grassroots organization, but if you follow the money, which was always a good advice uh, in these cases, you discover who was, uh, who was behind that. Um, the point of that uh, case was that if you look at the people's individual activity that they go and, and study um, uh, the Quran and, and go through some educational and charity activities. This is something that any person could do as part of their religious and uh, political uh, affiliation. But being funded by an organization like Hezbollah obviously has a different uh, angle to it. And they're not funding you just for uh, charity uh, operation purely. And this is, I think, the main uh, point uh, to be made here. The way Hezbollah operates broadly is the following. Um, and this is something that is covered in my, uh, in my book as well. Firstly, there are legitimate political parties in Lebanon. So if you are a Lebanese citizen, you can vote for them in the elections, they can have ministers, they're part of the uh, normal uh, political system in, uh, in Lebanon. They represent uh, the Shia, who are the largest group of uh, Muslims in, uh, in Lebanon. One of their main political agendas is that they have to have arms to defend themselves against uh, Israel. And the other political agenda they have, that they want to take the fight back to Israel wherever they are. So Hezbollah behind an attack, uh, for example, against the Israeli, the Jewish uh, community uh, building in Argentina, as an example. So it's not only cross-border attacks, like firing rockets and uh, so on, but also espionage and uh, disruptive activities and, and what is called in the West terrorism. Um, so just to be clear, this is like in the, in the context of, of, of geopolitics in Israel, this is like France having a, a main a political party in government whose objective is to destroy England or, or Britain. That's a good example. Uh, that's a very good example. So the levels of danger are extreme because these people control the government. They do, and the level of danger is also, uh, from my perspective, at the uh, from two perspectives. One is the intellectual level, so the leadership of Hezbollah, specifically uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the uh, leader, has a theory uh, that Israel is like a, a cobwebs, like a network of uh, spider webs, uh, meaning that if you strike it enough, it will uh, decompose. It looks, Israel from his perspective, looks very um, antagonizing and so on, but actually it's, it can be destroyed uh, very easily. How can they destroy it? Because of their uh, tight uh, connections to, uh, to Iran. So Hezbollah is funded by 
Iranian uh, transfers of uh, money and weapons. And this is also funding the international activity uh, of, uh, of Hezbollah. This is something that the US is also looking into. It's not only an Israeli uh, pet project, but also uh, something that the US and Western governments are uh, acutely aware of and trying to, uh, to fight. So apart from Hezbollah uh, using the Lebanese economy to draw resources, they also get funded by the uh, extremist regime in Tehran, yeah. in, in Iran. Yeah. So they also have an objective of destroying Israel. They do, and they have an objective also of uh, fighting Western presence in the Middle East yeah. uh, broadly. And Western presence means mainly what we associate in the West as democracy, liberalism, clean economy, devoid of corruption, uh, and so on. So, you know, Hezbollah would not say we are for corruption, but they will work with the Iranian government, which has an agenda that is also against the, the West broadly. So they hate they, they hate our our principles and and what we stand for. Absolutely, right. And um, I wonder, you know, just I imagine there might be some some young people who are still considering what to do in the future. Um, when you catch someone like this. You catch someone who wants to destroy you, who, who, who murdered your friend, who, who murders innocent people, and you put them away in prison. Uh, how does it feel? You know, how, how do you feel to have, to have achieved something like that? And uh, um, to know these people, you're, you're probably also saving lives by, by, by stopping these people, saving, uh, saving them from being attacked in the future. These are some of the most dangerous people in the world. There is satisfaction that you've put some uh, very dangerous people uh, behind the bars. What is also satisfying is that you are, in a way, making it known, uh, maybe not publicly, but at least the leaders behind those attacks know that you caught on with their methods and you know who they are and, and there is someone looking at what they're doing. They're not completely uh, able to hide behind the, behind the scenes. However, I must be honest with you, there's also a, a bit of uh, frustration because whatever you do, it will be a drop in the ocean. Uh, it's not different than the overall fight against uh, corruption and uh, financial uh, crime because you can put some people behind the bars, but then there'll be more. Uh, and the, it never stops. It never stops and they keep on innovating probably more quickly than the uh, governments uh, do. Okay. I'll give you an example. I, I did not find a way to operate directly against the same organization that uh, took my uh, friend's life uh, away. I found ways to operate against Hezbollah, and I found ways to operate against ISIS and, uh, and so on, but this particular cell is, is gone into the uh, effort, uh, the older people that came to Israel. And this is, you know, that is what happens with those terrorist networks. Right. They are underground and unlike, I suppose it's worth saying, although it's probably obvious, unlike oligarchs and uh, and you know organized crime they don't really like luxury they don't spend a huge amount of money uh, they don't draw attention to, to their lifestyle in the same way it's true and this is i think the hardest part of dealing with terrorist networks because they're not as visible as uh, the oligarchs and the uh, corrupted uh, people but they are obviously more dangerous because they can uh, directly fund the uh, fund attacks yes of course and I suppose you mentioned frustration. Is this why you decided you should try your luck in the private sector and, uh, and move to London? 
Um, it was part of it. Um, another part of it was that um, at some point I got more interested in the uh, banking and financial side of uh, counterterrorism. So uh, there is the operational side of, of where are the bad guys, how they organize them, and how do they uh, make decisions. And there is the more financial side of what channels do they use, what payment technologies, and so on. And I got more interested in the uh, technology aspects uh, of that. Uh, the move to London was part of my uh, role at uh, NICE Actima, one of the uh, largest uh, technology providers for uh, financial crime, so I moved to the uh, London uh, office. London is, I think, the best place to be in terms of where all the lines get connected between the US regime, which is the most robust in the world in terms of uh, sanctions and uh, financial crime in a prescriptive way, and uh, Europe, and uh, Eastern Europe, Asia, that is bleeding with different channels of illicit funding. So my professional development has gained a lot from uh, being in London. Also, you can meet people that are like-minded, coming from different uh, perspectives, like yourself, and like other people that are fighting uh, corruption and financial crime. Right. Well, that's interesting. That's very interesting. And um, I also spoke over the years with former police officers and other people who were on the law enforcement side, and they found the stakes lower in some cases in the private sector and they found that difficult to adapt to. Uh, how do you, what, what's your view of that? How do you comment on that? Uh, I can relate to the fact that the stakes are lower in the sense of I'm not putting anybody uh, behind bars. Uh, if I make a mistake, uh, nobody will go to jail. Uh, it is a different uh, environment. However, I think the intellectual complexity is much, much higher because you need to deal with not only the fact that you are operating on a very uh, large and uh, difficult problem, but also your funding is finite. So you need to also have a source of funds for what you do. And you need to convince people, uh, decision makers, that this is something that is worth investing on. To give you one realistic example, uh, and something I'm very passionate on about, what is the incentive for banks to invest in uh, your customer uh, technology solutions and you know, artificial intelligence and all that? Their incentive is to stay out of uh, fines and to stay out of uh, any regulatory uh, activities. But if the regulator is not aware of what they're doing, then they can continue doing what they're doing. And not because the banks are evil, that they're just there to do, to do business. But unaware, not paying attention to much of that, they can introduce quite a lot of criminal activity and terrorist activity into their systems without being aware of that. And when they become aware, it's too late. Uh, so the terrorist attacks in uh, England, for example, in uh, Manchester or in London, people moved money to fund those attacks through uh, British uh, banks. Who are those banks? They're still doing business. Is this something we can stop today? Maybe, but maybe the terrorists found other ways to move money, money into the country. So it's an ever-continuing uh, fight. Right, right. Well, that's, that's interesting. The next question is about your book. You did a book, this one here, you wrote it with two co-authors. It's called Terrorist Decision-Making, a Leader-Centric Approach. And um, can you say a little bit about the book? Uh, when, when did it come out and uh, you know what are the main points? That Stuff like that. So the book was co-written by uh, myself and another senior researcher under the uh, guidance of uh, Professor Alex Mintz, who is the head of uh, decisioning at the Israeli uh, Reichman University. Back then it was called uh, the Interdisciplinary Center. Um, Alex Mintz has a theory that um, 
terrorist decision makers are uh, politically driven rather than ideological or military uh, leaders and, and so on. And his uh, theory, his hypothesis was that we need to research them as political actors uh, and, and this is the main uh, psychological drive to them. So they're trying to maximize their visibility, uh, increase their performance in elections, uh, attract more followers, just like any other uh, public uh, leader. The topics of research uh, of that book, and what I covered uh, myself uh, mostly was Hezbollah again, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, um, which is, I think, a very interesting uh, case in, in point. He has to continue winning elections in Lebanon. Uh, he has to continue to be uh, one of the top parties in the, in the country, because the moment Hezbollah stops being a popular party, everybody else will turn against them and start asking questions. Why do we have in Lebanon a political party that has arms? But if Hezbollah is too strong to be uh, taken out, then they can continue doing what they're doing. So his main motivation, for example, this is one of the conclusions of the book, his main motivation to go for an attack against Israel or to refrain from attacks against Israel, to operate against ISIS, for example, Hezbollah fought against ISIS in uh, Syria, was to be seen as protecting the Lebanese uh, population. He was to be seen as a hero by the uh, Lebanese. Bin Laden, another interesting uh, case, Bin Laden operated at the global stage. He wanted to be a global leader of, uh, of jihad. And uh, this requires a different mentality in terms of attacks that are maybe very risky and very high profile that would make people want to join his uh, organization. So think about it like a marketing campaign, mm -hmm. a politically driven uh, activity. So terrorism is politics by other means. Exactly. The same, they, they say the same thing about war, don't they? Exactly. Uh, exactly. And if I were to uh, go to a realistic uh, example of that, the terrorists, uh, when they move money, uh, they use the same, uh, when they move, use, move people as well, when they move arms, they use the same networks uh, that move people for um, smuggling, human trafficking, and uh, so on. They use the same technology means that uh, criminals uh, use to move uh, their money. Why would those organizations work with uh, Hezbollah? Because they're afraid? Not always. I mean, you can't coerce people that are criminals into working with you. You have to project a, a, a strong political agenda to them that they want to work with you, even though for them it's very dangerous. Mm. Uh, so I've noticed that uh, in countries like Syria and Turkey and other countries, you have people that are basically criminals and professional operators in moving uh, illicit money, uh, goods, uh, people, and so on. And they choose to work with the terrorist organizations because they see some kind of ideological affinity, even though they might not be Shia, they might not be Iranian, they have no connection to these people, but they choose to work with them because they see themselves some kind of benefit from an ideological point of view. That's interesting. It's very fascinating. And the book came out, what year did the book come out? Oh, I don't remember. Uh, quite a while ago. Let's actually. have a look. Yeah. Um, It came out in 2020, so almost three years ago. Mm -hmm. So in, in the three years since, there have been still a lot of terrorist attacks, but ISIS hasn't been as, as big. So what else has changed in, in your approach to hunting terrorists, in the, to, to stopping terrorism finance in the private sector? What are the latest, the, the latest moves that you're making? So what has changed since uh, 2020? Uh, mainly ISIS is operating in a different way right now. It's no longer uh, 
run by a centralized organization. There's more like a methodology or a philosophy that different cells are taking, but the GLD threat is still there. And in fact, what keeps it low is mainly the activity of the Western intelligence services. But they're still there. And if you look at, for example, Afghanistan, the withdrawal of the West from Afghanistan will end up in economic destabilization of the country, which will introduce the potential of uh, another uh, jihad resurgence out of uh, Afghanistan, maybe in the future. So what, what has changed basically is that we have a more deconstructed uh, enemy, rather than you can paint a target and say this is ISIS, but now we don't know where they are, uh, which is a bit more like the uh, corruption and the financial crime. They are organized crime organizations out there, but you can't always tell where they are, who's working for them, what they're enabling, and so on. So terrorism is a bit like that today. Right, very interesting. And uh, I would like for the next question to, to, to bring it back to Iran. Um, we see today that Iran has begun targeting and terrorizing people inside the West. Uh, there the were Iranian operatives trying to kidnap and potentially assassinate an activist in America, journalists here in the UK that run um, a sort of opposition TV channel aimed at Iranians, they're under threat, they've been told by the police that they're not safe inside the UK. Journalists, uh, uh, activists, human rights, uh, human rights uh, people, and um, th this, this points to a to, very capable and and um, very determined regime. They uh, they don't care that the world is against them. They don't care that they're under sanctions. They want to harm as as many of their opponents as possible. And if that means working with Putin or even uh, even working with with gangsters, I'll ask you in the next question about how they work with gangsters. The the uh, I mean, how how is it possible to 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 control something like this? So I will correct you on a few points there, just to say that I don't think personally that Iran is uh, like the uh, kingdom of evil uh, that you see in, uh, in movies. I mean, maybe it's true about uh, North Korea, I suppose. There are elements in the Iranian uh, establishment that are very, very strongly Islamic and very, very strongly for um, uh, Islamic revolution uh, across the world. And these elements are also- Jihadi rather than Islamic. Correct, yeah. uh, and, and uh, they are the same elements that are uh, also fighting internally within Iran uh, against uh, liberalism and uh, you know, the protests that we had uh, a few months ago and, uh, and so on. So these elements can push the button on a formidable amount of resources and connections across the world to threaten anybody who is uh, opposing their agenda. But these are not the 100% of the Iranian uh, regime. It's not monolithic and, and maybe when you look at uh, the Russian uh, regime, for example, it's clear that the war is Putin's war. Everybody's saying that. I mean, one person pushed the button and the whole country went uh, along that. In Iran, there is a faction, a pretty strong one, that actually wants to compromise with the West. They want to come to an agreement with the US. They want to basically come to some kind of a, a compromise on the nuclear uh, weapons so that the West will stop uh, putting sanctions uh, against Iran. And this faction, is there, we can strengthen okay. it, we can uh, encourage them. So there is hope? Um, there is hope, um, but we need to be acknowledging of who we're talking about. 
the Iranian government is an Islamic government, and jihad is part of their uh, core uh, policies. They can compromise, and they can not take uh, military action. Uh, they don't need to kill people, uh, but they do want to be left in peace and not to be, uh, as far as they perceive it, uh, attacked by the West. So in the Iranian narrative, well, why can't we develop our own uh, nuclear weapons? Uh, other countries did it. What is wrong with us doing the same thing? And this is why I think clever policy response from the West can reduce the level of threat from uh, Iran. At the same time, if Iran is pushed closer to collaboration with Moscow, with uh, Beijing, then we have them as part of the uh, opponents. And this is not going to help any of us, I think. Okay, okay that's, a, that's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, and now, the, now about the gangsters, because I've been reading um, uh, most recently in the Times of London newspaper, uh, the crime and security correspondent John Mooney wrote a story about how the Kinahan cartel out of, out of uh, Ireland was working with the uh, extremist uh, jihadi groups in the Iranian government to uh, assassinate and, uh, and terrorize basically people in the West. And um, this is this seems to me that this is a marriage made in hell. You know, you got gangsters, organized crime. These people don't believe in anything except getting rich and having power over other people. They don't care who they work with. And then we have these super fanatical jihadis happy to work with gangsters who don't believe in anything, they don't believe in God, much less in the version of religion that they're promoting. I mean, these people take drugs, they sell drugs, you know, human trafficking, all the, you know, all the, all the horrible things that even jihadis would find immoral. And how, how do you see that? I mean, what's happening? Is this, uh, is this postmodern? What is it? So the jihadi outlook is basically we can collaborate with anybody uh, that will help us uh, approach our goal. Uh, they would not take drugs themselves and they would not operate as gangsters within their own uh, regime. So in Iran, for example, you're not allowed, of course, to uh, trade in drugs or to uh, be a prostitute and uh, so on. These, are, these things are illegal in Iran and are being strongly frowned upon. But infidels, people who are not Muslims, they can do whatever they want if they help uh, the revolution. I think what is the most interesting element to look at here, at least from my perspective, is, is the fact that these gangsters were not ideologically motivated to work with Iran. They're not jihadists, they're not, they're not Islamic, they don't care. So where is the money coming from? We have all these tight network allegedly of sanctions against Iran and still they can move money out of the country and hire a group of gangsters to do uh, their bidding. So there must be uh, quite a big hole in this uh, network of sanctions that all the money is uh, passing uh, through. And that, that led me to think uh, more closely around uh, Iranian oil, that it must find a way to get out of the country, because the main thing that Iran can offer is uh, petrol dollars, basically, uh, oil uh, money. Um, and there is probably a channel out there uh, whereby Iranian oil is being sold outside of the borders of uh, Iran illegally, and that funds uh, this kind of uh, gangster activities. Hmm. Okay, well, let's go back to that in a bit. Just wanted to say that having looked into this uh, partnership of terrorism and organized crime, there's a history behind it. And in Northern Ireland, even today, I think the different opposing uh, 
terrorist groups are involved in organized crime, but there is no religious aspect to it. Well, there is there is a sectarian aspect actually in Northern Ireland, but um, not there is no religious. There's Protestants, yeah, Protestants and Catholics, yeah. Uh, but um, um, also with with the FARC actually in Colombia, the FARC were communists, but they were working with the cartels to to sell cocaine and so forth. And um, there was a there was a paper from Rusi, the, the security think, think tank in London, saying that uh, the nexus of organized crime and terrorism is actually a big problem across Europe and the world, and um, authorities are not properly dealing with it. I wanted you to comment a little bit on that about your clients, um, your employer, financial companies. Do they look at these things? Do they understand what's happening? They look at these things. Uh, I don't think any one uh, faction understands what's happening. Uh, however, there are some uh, success stories and some challenges uh, as well. So, my own company, uh, Pega, uh, creates a software for a uh, customer. Uh, we have done, I think, quite a lot in terms of leveraging the latest and greatest technology. I mean, this week, we announced generative uh, AI as part of our uh, product. And what it does basically is take data from different sources and create a picture of the bank customer, including a risk rate. Is this person uh, risky or not? Is he associated with uh, uh, terrorist organizations, organized crime, and so on? So we're making headways, and, and many banks are investing in this technology to connect the dots between the available data. So this is a, a success story. Where is the issue, though? Uh, the issue is that uh, if you strip out the onions, of, uh, the layer of the onions, you found out that the underlying baseline of the uh, criminal terrorist uh, networks are people that are very sophisticated and they operate with a, a very high degree of understanding of how the uh, sanctions and KYC uh, tools are uh, operating. Not because they uh, know how technology works, but because they understand, for example, that shell companies uh, are something that can obscure uh, beneficial ownership uh, quite uh, easily. So they uh, do that. They understand that if you move small enough amounts of money under the radar using uh, tools like uh, cryptocurrency, but not only, you can also use normal PayPal and, uh, and so on. You can hide transfers of money uh, on Amazon in plain sight. Hmm. This is something that is, is, is happening and Amazon are fighting it. How is it happening? How is it happening? So uh, I, I'm crediting uh, other investigators, uh, Graham Barrow, uh, for example, uh, on this uh, point, but how is it happening? If you look at a site like Amazon or eBay, you find that you want to buy, for example, a headset. The headset costs $30. But if you look at all the different types of headsets, there are also headsets of $5,000, the same headset. Who would buy a headset for $5,000 if it's there for $30? The answer is... You buy it because you want to make a specific transfer of money. A predefined buyer and seller would buy that $5,000 headset this is one piece of and in money laundering. The, in the, that's fantastic. And in, in the, um, you know, the, the papers, it, it, it will show as though someone sold a fantastic piece of technology. Nobody would think it's money laundering. Exactly. And what the uh, terrorist organizations are doing, um, and like you said, they've been doing that for, uh, for years, it's not uh, new, is collaborating with the criminal elements. Uh, I, can, I can spend a whole day explaining how it works, but uh, largely they collaborate with the criminal elements. They create a layer of separation between themselves as the uh, Hezbollah organization itself and the criminals. And then what law enforcement uh, has as a, a problem is the people they catch are like small fish criminals. Nobody will pay attention to a person that moves, I don't know what, uh, $1,000 from uh, 
from here to there, even if they're doing it uh, illegally. But the move of those uh, sums of money is funding uh, a bigger attack uh, further down the line. So this is the challenge here, the separation between the part of law enforcement looks after terrorists and the part of law enforcement looks after uh, criminals. The connection between them is much more difficult than the terrorists coming and talking to the criminal elements uh, again in Turkey and Syria and all these countries. Hmm. Right, okay. And uh, let's go back to the oil a little bit. You said um, oil was, the, was one of the main sources of currency for Iran. And although we sh the West shouldn't be buying it, obviously we're somehow, some way buying it. And I think this is what's happening with the new best friend Vladimir Putin as well. Vladimir Putin isn't supposed to be selling oil to us under sanctions, but the oil comes here and we buy it. So how, uh, how, does, that, how does that work out? What can we do? Um, the way it works out is that, uh, like I said, Iran has different uh, faces, like uh, Yanos, it has, or uh, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, <laughs> it has the face that it comes to the West with uh, an offer of compromise, and the offer of compromise might be, let us sell a little bit of oil so that we can feed our population, because people in Iran are uh, you know, hungry and the, the economy is uh, crashed and, uh, and so on. And in return, we'll let you inspect our nuclear sites, or we'll come to uh, Geneva to a, a, a conference on compromise and, uh, and so on. The oil that is being sold, is it Iranian oil? Is it Russian oil? Does anybody know? It's oil. Nobody knows which pipeline uh, let this, uh, this oil. And this is, again, legitimate, sanctioned by the West. This is not something uh, secret that is uh, hiding. We just don't know the source of that, uh, of that oil. That's one way. The other way is there is a wall uh, of, of separation between what we can look at uh, in the West in terms of transparency of, um, of commerce and uh, finance and so on, and outside of that circle, uh, if, I'm, if I were to draw a map, the circle ends roughly where the Middle East starts, outside of that circle, it's difficult to tell. So is Iranian oil finding its way to Bahrain, to Oman, to Saudi Arabia, to, uh, to Emirates? There were stories that Saudi Arabia was buying Russian oil, refining it, and selling it. And because Russia gives them a good discount, they make a lot of money from it. That is a possibility because Saudi Arabia is also selling their own oil. So how do you know which oil uh, you is, can mix, is They can mix so, it together. The, it's like, so the fungibility of oil and the fungibility of um, currencies. Fungibility means you don't know if... Oil is like money. Yeah, yeah you don't know if that drop of oil is Russian or Iranian. Nobody can, uh, can tell. You don't know if this daughter is coming out of Beijing or Moscow, uh, means that there's quite a lot of illicit finance going on into the West without us being able to uh, keep yeah. track of all the sources. Right. And um, by the way of that, there's, a, there's in, an increasing amount of sanctions uh, financial companies have to apply or, or, or implement. And I wonder how you think they're coping, are they doing a good job? Uh, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in the industry today on coping with sanctions and applying them? The industry is basically playing catch-up with the uh, huge amount of sanctions. And the financial industry is also a bit uh, apprehensive of the fact that they're being used uh, to police uh, the uh, financial flows and not the government because they also need to make their own uh, profit margins healthy, which is a major concern of theirs. So I think, I think we're at a standstill because the West can 
draw more and more sophisticated and targeted sanctions against uh, Russia, Iran, and so on. It, it is possible. You can find the sources of money and oil and actually sanction against them and so on. But that will put more of an effort on, uh, on the banks and the uh, financial uh, companies. So that's where we are. We're, we're at standstill. My own prediction is that increasingly the financial companies will find better tools uh, using again, artificial intelligence, clever data uh, and analysis uh, and so on to get on top of the uh, sanctions at some stage, guided by uh, government uh, think tanks and so on. So I think we're winning the war, but uh, it takes uh, a lot of determination and dedication and the bad guys are also innovating. So you don't know the latest thinking uh, in Moscow or in Right, so I can see there's a bit of noise in the in the hallway from, from people rehearsing. So I think before they start properly rehearsing, we should bring it to a close. So you personally, are you going to continue your career? Are you going to continue writing? What are, what are your plans for the future? Uh, I think I'm married to, uh, first thing, my loving wife, but secondly to this uh, topic. Uh, so I plan to continue uh, operating in this space and uh, being at the uh, junction of uh, technology and the... Uh, Basic finance and financial crime. One particular item I'm looking at more and more is uh, sustainability and, uh, and proper governance because I'm coming to understand that you can have access to all the technology tools in the world, but if you don't have the right heart in your organization, you don't have the right principles behind you, then you will not Im implement them properly. That's one thing with the SARS, yeah, because if a SAR is created properly and if it's explained properly, then it becomes a tool to, to, to potentially give enough evidence for someone to, to, to be convicted of a crime. But if a bank or a fintech or whatever files 5,000 sites a day just to cover their own activity, and they don't really care what the, what, what the information is used or is, is it useful even, they don't care if the information is useful, then uh, you, uh, you, you can't, uh, uh, you're just running in circles, you, you can't come to, to a good conclusion. I think one very good thing that the UK government is doing is uh, looking at regulation of uh, AI uh, in a productive way. So they're looking at adopting artificial intelligence and using those technologies as part of the regime because they understood in the UK that you can't regulate everything to the uh, last degree. So much dark money has already found its way into the UK that what you need to do now is use clever tools to find it rather than closing the gates. Too late. Yeah. Uh, so By the way, SARS are suspicious activity reports, just in case. So you think, you think suspicious activity reports and, uh, and artificial intelligence are going to be blended together somehow? I think they'll be blended together. I think suspicious activity reports will change by nature. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't yet been uh, reformed, but you know, it's an international standard at this point, so you can't change them only in this, uh, in this country. But the SAR system specifically is not really working. I mean, law enforcement use that because that's the best they have, but what they really rely on is whistleblowing tips, uh, exposés in the, in the press, their own uh, covert intelligence. This is what they're actually relying on. The SARS are mainly used to bolster that with something from the uh, financial organization. It's a bit okay, of a waste. Given, exactly, given the amount of money that goes in the SARS, which is probably like over 10, 15 billion a year, that's a problem. Right? That, that is a problem, yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, thanks again, Yair, and good luck with everything. Thanks to our audience, and we'll be back next month.
and we're still working on the weekly format to break down the top news. Uh, hopefully this summer that's coming too. All the best. Thank you.